Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Roger. Roger. You better come get your critter before I chop his head off. You get your hands off of Spinner, you fucking bitch. Oh, Troy, I would never have let that old bitch ever get her hands on my pet. Be a dog or guinea pig. <laughs> well, you know, if, if the daughter would have responded like you just did, that guinea pig would still be alive. I know, to this very day. She was too busy doing a seance with her dead father to, to care. So Yeah, I forgot about that. I forgot <laughs> about that whole seance aspect of this film that we're definitely going to be getting deep into because it's a it's absolutely a mysterious element that I don't think is explained nearly enough. But but what is it? <laughs> but what is explained in this movie, Roger? <laughs> but you know what? Do I want it explained? Honestly, that's the question of the day. <laughs> there are so many questions this uh, uh, that this movie just <sighs> leaves wide open. Oh my god. Like, why are the people the ones that survived the ones that survived? That's one of the questions I have. Why, why, why has not the state of the state of Arkansas or whatever freaking state this? Why haven't they condemned this motel? Oh my god! It, it is the biggest. It is not. It is not suitable for human inhabitants. The only thing that pushed me through that, like under, made me find it acceptable or palatable, was the fact it was Arkansas to begin with. No offense to listeners in Arkansas. Uh, but I feel like if there's any state you can get away with a hotel that has a mysterious, uh, apparently sprawling maze <laughs> buried beneath it and uh, such animal infestation, I feel like the only place you could really get away with this would be someplace like Arkansas. Mm, that's a good point. It is. It is. But my God. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, we have a lot. To, this is going to be a fun. Folks, if you have not, no, if you don't know by the description of the episode, we are discussing uh the 1983 slasher flick mountaintop motel massacre which has one of the best taglines to come out of the 80s please do not disturb evelyn she already is that's a good one it is a good one and the you know what this is one that you know when i talk about like the golden age of the slasher genre for me. I grew up in the eighties. I believe you, you, you did too, for the most part, right? I, I mean, I was four. When it, <laughs> I mean, but you know, you, you kind of were there for the kind of the tail end of the eighties slasher craze. Right. And you, you, I'm assuming, do you remember like blockbuster videos? Oh going to the mama? Okay. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. I, this, this is one of the box art covers that just intrigued me as a kid for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Um, it is to me, one of the probably standout box art covers of the eighties definitely caught my attention as a kid. And it took a long time for me to actually be able to see it. And I remember watching it as a kid. And I, I think as a child, this film potentially moves a little too slow to keep uh, 
to keep interest to a kid. So I don't remember what, I didn't remember much about it. So I wanted to really revisit it for the podcast because I haven't seen this movie. Oh God. I'm going to say 30 years probably. Oh my God. Yeah. So I wanted to, I remembered very deep minor things about it. Like I do remember the Guinea pig at the beginning getting killed. That had an impact on me. I do remember the tunnels underneath and the snake. I do remember that stuff, but I it's, it's been literally about 30 years since I saw this. I'm like, I want to revisit this film because as I'm, you know, scrolling through Tubi and whatnot to find stuff to watch, it always pops up. I always see the VHS or the, the cover art. I'm like, it takes me back to that nostalgic time in the, in the eighties in my local mom and pop video store. So I was like, I want to rewatch this. And lo and behold, we did. And, uh, yeah, I have a lot to say about it. This is one of my favorite combinations for us is the film that you are passionate about up against a film that I have not seen. I mean, <laughs> we have all kinds of different uh, setups for these reviews. Sometimes you haven't seen it. Sometimes I haven't seen it. Sometimes together we both haven't. And I always like it when you come into this very passionate and I'm clueless because a lot of times you do introduce me to films that even if I don't love them, it makes sense why they've stuck with you. You know, a lot of these films have something about them that just makes them... Um, memorable for the good or the bad. And this film, I will say like, while it's definitely got a lot of aspects that I'm going to critique or question, I'm also coming away from this as a first time viewer, kind of in in several regards, impressed with this film. Um, And I didn't anticipate to be impressed with it. Uh, Having a title like Mountaintop Fucking Motel Massacre, I mean, it it definitely exceeds my expectations based solely off of what a title like that is presenting to the table. This film offers some great moments of drama, some great moments of suspense. Uh, There's some sequences that are actually very well executed. Uh, But one thing I also took away from this movie that I'm going to get into several times, so I just want to kind of set the groundwork now, is within the genre, special effects can make or break a film. And unfortunately, for all of the things I found positive to take away from this movie, this is an example of a movie that I I feel um, the legacy has like greatly diminished, greatly in part to the unusually bad gore and makeup effects throughout the course of this film. This movie definitely disappoints when it comes to like the reveals. Especially unfortunate is the fact that a lot of the buildups to some of these sequences are actually quite well handled. Well, I think the problem was the fact that the the, the transfers, if you watch this on Tubi or one of the streaming you know channels, uh, it's the version that's been restored or cleaned up a bit. I, I and you can definitely tell that the effects are definitely subpar. You could, I mean, they're not even, I wouldn't even say they're close to being anywhere near good. They're sloppy, but in the old VHS copy, you know, that was grainy and, and and whatnot, they didn't look as bad. Uh, So this is a film that I feel like the fact that it got a a Blu-ray treatment and, and the transfer got cleaned up and, and restored. I think that actually hurt this film quite a bit. I mean, because even like the scenes in like the tunnel, you know, um, that we'll, we'll talk about were much more effective. I, I would feel like an, like on the grainy VHS. I'm sure, I'm sure that that's the case with those sequences, but I still got to say now some of those moments with the shadow play and what have you still 
even in the 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 restored edition that I did view, still um, left me impressed. Again, impressed. This the kind of building tension that this film has at several several points in the film. There are moments that I actually feel a palpable swelling element of suspense that carries through these moments quite nicely, quite uh, dramatic. It's pretty masterfully played. And when you're thinking of what the storyline actually is, like when you sit back and you're like, this is the story, the film still manages to like handle itself with more like care and nuance at certain points than I, again, would have anticipated from a film entitled Mountaintop Motel Massacre. (laughs) It feels polished. It feels polished. This film is very atmospheric as well. And I, I use that word. There's a, there's a handful of films that came out of the eighties that I feel like have a very strong atmosphere to them. And this is one of them. Uh, and I, I it's, but, but we're going to get to it. We're going to dive right into mountaintop motel massacre without first beforehand doing our weekly little plug of our Patreon. Project. It's a song and dance. Da, da, da. <laughs> we need to get some 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 more patrons. We have so much stuff up there now. We're I was surprised that like we have literally guys, we have like 10 total episodes up. We have six full-length reviews, and then we have four mini episodes where we do we do like a little short half hour episodes where we do so far we've been doing like our top three. Uh we did like our top three. Uh, underrated final girls. So just check it out. If you if you if you've listened to all our episodes and you want more, join the Patreon. There's like I said, there's 10 episodes up right now that you can dive into and we're going to record our next one this weekend and we already have our, our Patreon picks for January. If you're not submitting, you're a fool. I'm sorry. I mean like the number the number of uh, episodes just keeps climbing because we are not missing a beat and we're on each other's asses. We're both very paranoid about missing a beat. So we assure you, you're going to get your fucking goods if that's something you're worried about before giving us $2 to see what we can give you. But I mean, I think honestly, our next episodes, Troy, I think we've got some very fun things coming up. And I think just announce them, like just tell them what they got coming. Let them know. There's no way they're going to sign up if they don't know that there's more good shit on the horizon. Oh, there's there is more good shit. What are we doing? We're doing our our mini episode for January. Is our we're going to choose our top three choices for a part two of a franchise? I love it. I've 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 got mine picked. I've got them. So do I. We're we're recording that this weekend, so that'll be up on the Patreon probably Sunday or Monday. Uh, and then we're doing your your choice for your film is what. The choice for my the, the choice for my film is um oh my god I think it's is it two thousand it's like two thousand three two thousand four the date really doesn't matter <laughs> it's de- it's decoys who the fuck hasn't seen decoys Troy hasn't seen decoys I'll I haven't much. seen Joy decoys I never even know what the I've never even heard of it well get ready because we talk about that calendar Troy there's several specific scenes we'll be recreating in our uh, two thousand twenty three holiday calendar we'll be releasing at the end of the year uh <laughs> so guys there you go we're gonna have you're gonna have a a, bon- a mini episode to listen to of our top three choices for part twos of franchises and then rogers pick decoys i will tell you my pick next week. oh my god i'm, just, I, I'm no. trying to decide between three titles roger i'm really struggling so give me a break well troy honestly listen i mean this right, this is how we know who's fucking listening to our full podcast and who, <laughs> who, who's just bullshitting their way through it and skimming and missing moments. 
I think you should state your three selections on this episode. And if I, if our fans have listened to this episode and they hear this moment, they can give their opinion. They can lend an opinion. That's a great idea. Here we go. Here are my three choices I'm trying to decide between. Okay. Interactive. We're interactive this week. <laughs> First one is the slasher flick from, oh, it was the mid nineties. I believe it's called Mikey. It has a little kid from family ties in it. And he is a killer. <laughs> he's like, he, he gets adopted into different homes and he's like a serial killer. He kills off the families he lives with. The, so that's one of them I'm trying to decide between. Uh, the other one is the one from the 80s. Oh, I don't know. See, I don't have them. It's 1988. It's called Ghost House, directed by Umberto Lenzi. And it has that creepy-ass clown doll in it that's on the cover. And then the third one I'm trying to decide between is really something. This was the one I was leaning towards because it's some, it's like unlike anything we've we've really done, or at least I would pick, but it's the 1990 thriller slash drama. It's horror, more of a thriller starring Cheryl Ladd and Stacey Keenan called Lisa. Oh my God. How obscure and unexpected, Troy. I love it. I love that you're getting a little bold with these specialty uh, selections for our, our patrons, because honestly, that's some good shit. It's diverse. They got, a, I mean, they've got a good title to pick from no matter what. I know which one I'm leaning towards. Guys, so yeah, if you if you do listen to us, please chime in on our post when we post this on our Facebook page and say which one you would like us to do. Um, and then I'll, I'll reveal which one I pick next week. But sorry, we spent so much time on the Patreon. But seriously, guys, check it out. The link is in the show notes. It's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search for Dark Knight of the Podcast. There's three tier levels. It, it just helps us improve the show. You know, it helps us cover some of the costs for for doing this podcast in terms of podcast hosting and things like that. So it just will help us grow. We love doing it. So check it out. Check it out. Come join us. We have a blast. The people that have the, our seven Patreons or seven patrons so far seem to dig it. They, they love what we're doing. The, you know, the, the episodes are pretty much exactly the same as, as our, these regular episodes. We don't skimp. I mean, hell, I think one of our, 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 uh, our midnight kissed episode was almost two hours long. So we're not skimping. So check it out. Okay. So that's enough about that, but do tell me what movie you would like us, like me to cover on the Patreon for this month. Okay. So, Roger, are you ready to discuss Mountaintop Motel Massacre? Troy, I've got my $7 in hand, and I'm ready to rent the fucking room. Okay, folks. Here we go. (laughs) We're going to dive right in. (laughs) The two of us in that goddamn red beetle just taking off (laughs) on the hunt for our dreams. We're going to go get that singing career, Troy. (laughs) We're aspiring country singers. (laughs) That's us. Oh, God. <laughs> but I, I do love that the film starts with a, uh, you know, the, the ominous opening score. But there is a f- picture that's flashed up on the screen of Evelyn that says she was released from the mental hospital on July 13th, 1978. She's in a straitjacket, right? But she's posed very, you know, I think they brought glamour shots in and... And did this photo with her in her straight jacket because she looks very posed and professional, I thought. Um, yeah, the photographer on, on location that day doing the um, – apparently doing the, 
the, the personal private sittings for the those in the institution really was on their A game. The lighting is great. Her hair is styled perfectly. It, it gives a time frame. It says she was admitted July 13th, 1978, released January 24th, 1981. So she was in for a few years. Oh, so because she was, okay, so I missed it. I, I guess I was, I was transfixed by her beautiful pose that I did not. <laughs> I get it. Well, and the one just kind of, it fades in at the bottom. She looks very end. angelic with her neck craned and. Yeah, it's a good angle for her. It's a good angle. But right off the bat, I mean, they're telling you this 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 old broad is uh, not all there. She's not all there. She's got some issues that Evelyn Chambers and apparently these issues are enough to drive this woman to be violent enough to kill a guinea pig within the first four minutes of the film. I mean, we get a guinea pig slaughter within minutes minutes of this movie just barely getting into the storyline so the film opens <laughs> after the photo and are letting us know that she was just released from a mental institution she's in, now in her garden just doing some pleasant gardening and we see this cute this cute little white guinea pig it's so cute it's making the little squeaking noises that guinea pigs do <laughs> you know and apparently evelyn is not a fan of guinea pigs because she yells for her daughter, Lori, to come get her critter before she chops its head off. Because she has a sickle and she's just chopping away in her garden. And this poor little guinea, how did it get out of the house in the first place? Doesn't she keep it in a cage? This beautiful pristine white guinea pig in the middle of all this soil and soot, just sitting there squealing at her. And like, let's, let us, let's acknowledge that guinea pigs are probably the single most innocent and non-threatening animal you could possibly like present to a person. And this dame is irate. Evelyn is just fucking livid about this guinea pig. And enough again to sickle it. And it's like a whole bloody mess. She really just destroys this thing. She pops it like a zit. <laughs> well, like, she, it's, well <laughs> it's so funny because after she yells for her daughter to come out and get it and she's waiting, she's just sitting there glaring at it, like giving it dirty look. Yeah, like there's back and forths of like growing suspense between her and the guinea pig, like just really eyeballing each other. <laughs> and we cut to inside and the daughter is inside playing with a rabbit. She's on a bed. She's on the bed with her rabbit, oblivious to what's going on outside. And apparently... You know, Evelyn's like, hey, fuck this. Laura, you're taking too long. So she goes over to the guinea pig and she's like, I can't side it and warn you. And she starts hacking the shit out of it with the sickle. And the poor thing is squealing and blood spraying everywhere. It's certainly not a very good first impression of Evelyn. No, it's horrible. I mean, goddamn. It's not even like it's an unlikable animal. It's a fucking guinea pig. Like, not saying there's any animals I want to see die in a film. But at least it could be one that's posing a threat intimidating her seems like it's going to get into some mischief like again this guinea pig is literally <laughs> literally not, i don't see how she'd even see it to begin with because it's still an unwavering it's just looking at her eyes trembling but whatever so she kills it <laughs> in rage and this leads into this whole moment with her daughter Lori that i find very interesting and actually like Troy, I went back and, you know, watched this a second time. And after watching it straight through, I have so many more questions about this opening. I mean, I already had questions to begin with. But, like, you see this whole setup with Lori. And she's sitting with her rabbit. And she puts, like, a noose around the rabbit. Like, that, it doesn't look like a pleasant leash. It looks like a noose to me. Um, And it's very, like, ominous and suspenseful. And 
it, it almost makes me wonder, like, how much involvement did Lori, the daughter, have in her mother's, like, progressively more and more unhinged mental state? If that makes sense, like, it, this whole opening feels very dark. It feels like the girl, see, she goes down into the cellar, and it's filled with, like, livestock, and it's 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 very weird. Like it has a it has a dark like black magic vibe to it. It doesn't look like she's up to anything good. It looks like she's plotting something. And she starts praying to dark forces and her father. And her voice is all like whispered and ominous. And she's praying to her father to like bring her answers about her mother because she's getting sicker again. Uh, answer me, answer me. Like she's like getting all like mysterious and. I don't know what they're implying with this sequence, but I almost feel like she's got to be directly involved with the shit that transpires and her mom just kind of, her mom was already crazy, but she just breaks. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it's a very odd, yeah, odd dynamic and you, but you really don't see them spend any time together or have any dialogue together. So you can't gauge what the relationship is. Because, yeah, Lori's down there literally doing a seance. She's like, I summon thee to her father's picture. I summon thee. And Evelyn's nosy ass in the meantime has come back inside and and gone down in the cellar. And she she comes upon the scene. It angers her more than the guinea pig did. Because she starts (laughs) hacking She's hacking pictures. She's hacking flowers. She's hacking the shit out of everything. And she's like, I told you never to do this again. All this time, Lori is just sitting in this chair, not saying a word, not moving at all, which I thought was weird. But then Evelyn, like, <laughs> just goes off and hacks her daughter in the neck with the machete. Or it's a sickle. Sorry, not a machete. Evelyn is giving her best. Gunnar Hansen as Leatherface kind of performance here. She's she's like spinning and twirling with her sickle held high. She's ripping things off walls and cutting shit down. And then she like, I don't want to say accidentally because like she's a fucking whirlwind, but she basically accidentally kills her daughter. I'm going to say here with this with this as it unfolded, this is what I suspected the story was literally until the movie ended. <laughs> I thought that what the girl did was like cast a, a spell with her seance that when her mother killed her, basically caused either like, because her mo- her mom's mentally ill, she's unwell, her brain was like weak enough that like either the father's spirit or the daughter's spirit then like possessed her and like took over her body and was like operating as her over a period over the course of this movie. And I still don't know if I'm right or wrong and even thinking that because all throughout the movie, there's moments where you hear like the daughter's voice still present, like mama, mama, like she's whispering to her. There's moments where Evelyn seems like very out of it and very like in a trance almost. And I'm like, bitch is possessed. She's possessed by somebody, but who? Uh, whether or not that's answered or even the case by the end of the film, like I'm not going to say now, but um, that is what I thought the storyline was setting up to be. Does that make sense? It does. I, I don't see that, but I just think that she's just a crazy old bat. Uh, but you could be. But that's disappointing to me. <laughs> you could be right. You could be right. I mean, you know, I, I let's let's like get the obvious out in the open is, is this film. I think 
was definitely giving uh, copying. I don't want to say copying. What, what's the word I'm looking for? Homaging. <laughs> Homaging. We use that word a lot. Psycho and Psycho 2. You know, Psycho 2 had come out around the same time. And, you know, there's not a lot of horror films that take place at a motel, right? So I feel like this one was just kind of a, a sort of a ripoff of Psycho. But instead of using a, a male Norman Bates, they went with an elderly woman. It's Psycho without the sun. <laughs> It's like, yeah, yeah, pretty much. So I just felt like, I just feel like the film is a, just a, it's kind of a psycho ripoff. I don't think it goes that deep that she's possessed. Obviously this broad is crazy from the get go and just killing her daughter, I think drove her over the edge. So that's my impression. You, or though you could be right. I've never thought of it as like kind of a supernatural or possession type film, just because I didn't get any of those vibes. I feel like when, when you're hearing the daughter say mama, that's just her, she, her, she, she's hearing voices. Yeah. I have a few little moments that I'm going to bring up over the course of this to kind of just present my theory and we'll keep going. Let's, let's be honest. Evelyn is not the most interesting villain ever to put on screen. Uh, there's not a lot to this character, and I think that's another thing that we're going to discuss is Evelyn's not intimidating. We really know nothing about her. Uh, in a film that's chock full of, I think, interesting characters, mm-hmm. Yeah, she is by far the least interesting. Yeah. She really has no purpose in the film except to kill off these the victims. She has no dialogue. She has really no interaction with anybody in the film. It's just an odd choice and she's not intimidating. So it makes the ending of the film or like the climax of the film just kind of fall flat and and come off as being like contrived and silly, but we're going to get there. Okay. So she kills her or she hacks her daughter in the neck accidentally, quote unquote, uh, the police and ambulance show up. Uh, they're trying to resuscitate her and she's kind of in the corner crying, whimpering, watching him. And I want to know, how did this old bat bring this, carry this daughter up and put her on the floor? Oh, I know. Like, she's like, not only did she like completely move the body, which is, you know, illegal, but she also brought her all the way up that like wooden staircase from that cellar, like that little ladder. Like, yeah, I highly doubt it. Yeah. Because there's no way that the, that she left that body down there. To, for the police and ambulance to see that room because it would not, it would poke a hole in her story, right? Because she tells the police and the ambulance when they ask her what happened, she's like, Oh, there was an accident in the garden and I don't remember anything. And they just accept it. They just accept it. Although the, the sheriff guy does, he seems a little kind of uh, skeptical. You know, he's like peeking around the house. He sees Lori's bedroom with all those. We did not mention these creepy fucking dolls. Oh, yeah. They're all over the fucking place. Horrific, like just disgusting looking dolls. The sheriff is a character that I feel you're and you're right in a cast of very interesting people because there's a shit ton of intriguing characters in this film. He could have used with a little more development up against some of the other characters who surprisingly do get some. He has a few prominent moments here at the beginning, but he kind of like fades away into the background of the story for a large chunk of the film. And it it was all things considered how things worked out. I think that they would have done better for themselves to have had him be a little more prominent over the progression of the story. Because he he does seem skeptical and then it kind of goes nowhere. 
because the, uh, there is a character that has been staying at the hotel for a while whose name is uh, Reverend Bill, right? This kind of heavy set drunken reverend who's been staying at the hotel because apparently he was a friend of Evelyn's husband. He chimes in when the, when the sheriff does quite try to question Evelyn further about what happened. He does chime in and be like, he's like, don't you think she's, she's in no condition to answer questions, leave her alone. And the sheriff kind of just like obliges. Uh, And that's that they just take it that this girl had an accident in the garden. She's dead. And that's, that's that because we cut to the funeral. Yeah. Over that sequence, I have to point out one little thing and it was an interesting um, addition to the moment. And I, I don't even know if it was intentional, but over the scene between the Reverend and the sheriff, the Reverend being one of the standout actors in the film, by the way, his performance is consistently pretty damn good. I think there's the sound of this fan just beating in the, in the room. Like you can hear the blades like, and it has the sound of almost like this kind of rising heartbeat and adds this like level of tension to this conversation. It's subtle. It's subtle, but I noticed it. And I noticed even more upon a second viewing right off the bat. They do a really good job of pacing this movie in a way that it almost feels like kind of like an un- un- unfolding thriller at times. Lots of moments of like kind of just like building tension and suspense. Uh, several like kind of longer conversations. There's scenes that kind of take their time. Um, and I really think like leading up to this funeral and even the way the funeral was handled was surprisingly dramatic, well played, and um, just kind of captivating. Like I found the opening of this film strangely captivating. Well, Reverend Bill is the one that's conducting the funeral. Uh, the sheriff's there watching on. Evelyn's kind of sitting there just in her own little world, which is, she is the entire movie. In the meantime, the sheriff goes back to the motel to kind of check things out. Because, like, again, this guy, I think, is pretty skeptical of Evelyn's story. So he's going to look, in, uh, to look back and see if he can find anything, any kind of clues or anything. And this is when we do see, like, these cabins that are dilapidated <laughs> the rooms of this. Oh my God. They are dilapidated. They're, they're falling apart. There's like holes in the roofs. The doors are falling off. The screens are coming off. They're, they're filthy. We do cut back after the, after the, uh, the funeral, Evelyn's back at her motel. Reverend puts her to, to bed and he goes back to his cabin to drink his a big old bottle of whiskey. Because this reverend lacks to drink. The whole movie. That's all he does is consume alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. And this is when we get a new character that shows up. Crenshaw. Robin fucking Crenshaw. Best character in the film. Well, yeah, I agree. The smartest character in the film. He, he shows up for a room. It's only $10. She charges him. Isn't ten. it seven? I, no, I she, she seven. charges him ten. She charges the uh, the couple seven. Oh, uh, mm, that so, fucking racist old bitch! I know, right? That's what I was thinking. Why are you charging the old black man ten dollars, but you charge the couple, two people, seven? Well, he's onto her right from the get go. I mean, the, the taxidermy in this place should be enough for any random visitor to approach and say, "Absolutely fucking not!" Like that alone is foreboding. Is all of these just dead animals everywhere? But 
Evelyn wakes up to Crenshaw after hearing the voice of her daughter say, Mama, Mama, like whispers a few times. And it causes her to wake up and she comes out of her room into the office in this like weird kind of daze. She's like, even she's like touching her face a little bit and her eyes are kind of glazed over. And this was one of the first things that kind of pushed my theory of like, is she kind of like in a trance almost? Like, is this how she naturally is when she's mentally off? Or is there something else at play here? That's kind of one of the things that pushed that belief for me over the course of the movie was this specific moment. But either way, she's definitely um, affected by something when she comes out of the room right off the bat. Yeah, yeah. I think, like I said, I, I just got the impression that her daughter's death really had a major effect on her. She's hearing her daughter's voice, um, and it's just she's she's kind of lost all grip of reality. Uh, so she gives Crenshaw the room key. He goes out to get his luggage and he does run into Reverend Bill. So they, the, the two of them meet and kind of have a conversation about nice that someone else is staying in this place with, you know, cause I've been the only one here and Crenshaw is like, yeah, I'm just looking for work. He's a carpenter just traveling to find work. I'm like, you could start by fixing this fucking place up. First of all. Oh my God. Yeah. Hire him. Fucking hire him. But Reverend Bill McWiley and goddamn Robin Crenshaw are just delightful together. I mean, give me a buddy comedy with these two gentlemen in the leads. Um, I think they have several scenes together, and I think they're actually just, like, both pretty capable, well-seasoned actors. Like, two older men just, like, shooting the shit and having these conversations. And um, I like that they kind of took time to develop this kind of, like, budding friendship between the two of them. It was just an interesting choice. And um, it kind of lent to you rooting for some of these characters more as the movie progressed. We do cut to the, the newlywed couple. There's a newlywed couple that are driving. He's driving. It's Vernon. Vernon and Mary. And Mary, and they just got married. And they are, he is hell bent on taking her to this mountaintop motel. That's his destination. He's like, We're going to this motel. I'm going to take you to this motel. I'm like, Dude, this is your honeymoon. <laughs> like, come on, man. Like, are you sure you want to go to this motel? This girl needs to like step up her standards because this is by far the seediest, most unappealing hotel. I've ever laid eyes on, eyes on whether it be in a movie or in here in Cleveland, Ohio, because we got some fucking shitty ass motels, and this is by far worse than anything I've ever seen here. Oh, this is a I've this is a this, <laughs> this is, is a, it should be condemned. This is, <laughs> this is a travesty that it's people horrible. actually have to stay in this place, let alone even charging them any money to do so. Um, Vernon and Mary. Who's, first of all, whose hairstyles combined almost completely derailed the film for me from the get-go. Um, as soon as I saw their hair, it's like glaring me in the eye every time I see those fucking combined mullets. But they're endearing. They're likable. And um, you never get used to that hair, though. Like, that is some bad hair on both of those people. <laughs> well, they're sweet. They're innocent. You know, they, they definitely give off that vibe of, like, young love. They they're just so smitten with each other that they kind of rushed out to get married. I mean, this dude can't even afford a, a nice hotel to take this, his, his new wife to, they have to resort to the $7 a night mountaintop motel. Uh, so I, they're, they're endearing together. They really are. You, you like them. You kind of have, like you said, you're getting characters to root for. 
we do we do see Evelyn. We do get a scene of Evelyn back at the hotel, back in her her quarters of the hotel, playing with this. She has snakes in an aquarium, and she takes she takes one out and yeah. puts it in a yeah like a <laughs> bag. Yeah. The next thing you know, she's fucking manhandling like an asp or something. Like like it just like she's just holding it and she puts it in a bag like it's no big deal. Like she's just she seems fine with the fact she's just handling this deadly snake. Um, but I gotta say that that this is a scene, and this is this starts to be a trend for me through the film. The score, though seemingly amateur, at times is extremely effective because the the snake, and it's kind of cliche. It has like this rattle sound that accompanies it. And at first, I almost felt like are they like are they implying that this is a rattlesnake? Because it's I don't think it's a rattlesnake that she's holding, but it's still got like a. But it's, it really is just the score kind of building up with this rattle-esque sound that just gives you kind of that creepy... It, it, it just goes well with a snake. You know, it may not be the right sound for this specific snake, but it just sounds like what you would expect a snake to sound like. But it's like, in the sense of building score, it's great because it starts swelling and growing over this otherwise very simple scene. It literally is just her putting a snake in a bag and putting the bag on the floor and just like looking at it. And it really, I think, enhances this moment and makes it kind of climax in this way that you like, you know, something is about to happen. Some kind of big shit's about to hit the fan, you know? Well, and it does. The The newlywed couple show up at the hotel, the motel, and she right away is like, what the hell is this place? And he's like, what'd you expect? A holiday inn? I can't afford that. I want, how are people finding out about this place? Yeah. How is it so busy? <laughs> Oh my God. I'm like this place. It's like so off the beaten path anyway. So he goes in and he goes into Evelyn and she's like, Oh, aren't you a pretty one? She actually, this is like the only guy she actually talks to that when he shows up that everyone else, she just ignores and gives him their keys. This is one she tries to actually have a conversation with though. It's very awkward and doesn't really go anywhere except she does charge him $7. And as he's leaving, she gives him a candle because it's storming out. Of course, it's storming out. It's lightning and raining. So she gives him a candle in case the lights go out. And then she says, tell your little wifey I'll have a little something for her. That alone sounds very foreboding. And I would have questioned that further. Um, this whole moment when she like approaches him and her eyes are large and glassy and like unblinking and she's just staring at him with this very ominous tone. She says, uh, here in case the lights go out. Like it just, <laughs> it's so heavy handed, but he plays it off. Like I reckon they're going to be out either way, but <laughs> like, it's kind of like a little sex joke. I'm like, yeah. okay, go get it boy. And she's so like appalled by all of this. I do want to point out Troy very quickly that, before this moment, we had a brief introduction, a brief introduction to two young women who do become rather prominent over the course of this film. Oh, I was getting there. Oh, because these two gals are the bells of this ball, I would say. Oh, don't, don't get ahead of ourselves, Roger. We're getting there. We're getting there. Well, we did. We did before the moment where the the couple arrives because there's that whole scene of them driving the truck where he like avoids. Yeah, it. <laughs> it's super brief. 
It's brief, but it's it's a musical performance. You you already told me how much you love these two dames. You were sending me pictures of them. (laughs) (laughs) You were. (laughs) Troy and I are. We're talking about releasing a covers album here in the next couple years. You know when we're famous. (laughs) And I said I was like Troy. Every single one of these songs is going on this couple cover album. We're learning these harmonies (laughs) as long as I can be prissy. (laughs) Oh, Miss Prissy, Prissy, and fucking. Tanya, <laughs> these two Southern bells, they're church going girls. They're, they are out on a mission to find fame and fortune with the powers of their harmonies. They were beautiful singers. And they say it themselves. They say, watch out Loretta Lynn. <laughs> and these girls can't sing for shit. <laughs> like these girls, you get like three, three separate musical numbers where they're just performing, <laughs> singing together, sometimes for audiences, sometimes alone. Um, and they're so proud of themselves. Like they're very impressed. Well, they And, and they sure are going to spread their legs pretty quick to get a record deal too, huh? At least one of them. Mi- At least one <laughs> Miss, of them. Miss Prissy. You, you I'm, I'm Prissy. You're, you're the one that wants to spread her legs so you can get a record. Oh, deal. I'm, I'm Tanya? Like, I'm Tanya. That's about yes. right. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. I'm definitely Tanya. I'm I'm the one that throws a temper tantrum and storms off into the bathroom. It completely abandons our friendship for, for fame and fortune. Yeah, that would be me. Oh man. Anyway, so after fucking the newlywed guy goes back out to the car, Evelyn grabs the bag, pulls a trap door open, and hurries down the steps to this tunnel system. That is underneath this motel. And okay, so when we say motel, we have to point out that these are separate cabins. Yeah. Right? It's not like a connected motel. It's There's like four or five separate cabins. But there's a tunnel system that goes from Evelyn's quarters, her house, underneath the ground to all of these cabins. And each cabin has a hidden trap door in the bathroom that she's able to come up through. Very interesting concept, I think. Yeah. But she give she gives them room two, I think, or whatever it is. And she her old ass hurries, scurries through this tunnel system to go to the to that particular cabin to hurry up and open the bathroom trapdoor so she can let this fucking asp loose in their room. She's sprinting fucking full speed. And she's oh, and she but she is have you see her la- she's smiling. Oh, she's gloating. She's, she's she's fucking gloating. She's like, "Oh, <laughs> ooh, I did it." Like she's so mischievous, this bitch. I got to say Troy, the um introduction of this fucking maze system definitely adds a whole other intriguing element to this to this film it also just adds to my not stating my theory is correct but my confusion in you open up with this big fucking seance and now you've got a full goddamn maze of murder running between these houses like there's did did fucking uh evelyn construct this by herself somebody else had to help oversee the construction of this massive mysterious maze system with hidden doors like somebody else had to help this crazy woman see this vision to fruition if this is her master plan there is no way you can convince to me that this woman constructed this herself <laughs> like why is it there like <laughs> i uh, maybe her husband how how who but yeah exactly but that's what i was saying 
than if the husband was constructed murder mazes under these fucking motels. The, the motels themselves look like porter potties. They're so small. If if he oversaw the construction and execution of this maze system underneath his motel, don't you think he had something dark and mysterious he was hiding as well? Like, I'm very confused as to how this maze system became a thing to begin with. Maybe it just came with the place when they bought it, Roger. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I can buy it. I can buy it. I do have to, I do have to say another thing. This is a quite a compliment because I love this film. God, do you see the inspiration that the movie Vacancy took from this film? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Vacancy basically refined the idea into something far more terrifying and, like, you know, built off of it. But this sets the groundwork, both literally and figuratively, because it's the same fucking maze. Um, It sets the groundwork for what I think became the story for Vacancy. I love the maze aspect of it. I would have liked it to have been sewn into the story a little bit more because people certainly don't seem to question it when they find it. (laughs) Well, yeah. So she puts the snake in the room just as the couple couple enters the room, right? And this room, God, I know we're going to harp on this a lot, but this room is fucking disgusting. The carpet is peeling off the floor. The wallpaper is all crusty. I would immediately leave and sleep in my car. Imagine being that bride who's like, I'm on my honeymoon. My husband's taking me to a rural motel where I'm. there's going to be trees surrounding the fireplace and the chimney is going to be made out of bricks. It's going to be beautiful. And then they arrive up at that shit hole. Literally, it's like a small shit hole. That's all it is in a bed. They arrive. Imagine how pissed that woman must be acknowledging that this is her honeymoon well she's trying to be positive about it because she's like he's like don't say anything and she's like i know i was told if i can't say anything nice to not say anything at all and then she's like what the hell's that over there vernon there is a fucking sack the the burlap sack that fucking uh evelyn threw in their room that had the snake and it. it's just laying right there in the middle of the floor how does Mary not realize that there's a snake in this bag? I don't know. What he else would it be? He tells her, just throw it in the corner. I'm like, no, you go and you ask for another room because obviously some. Here's my uh, thing. Troy, snakes are living and they're living animals. They move, they writhe. And when she picks up that bag, it's not it's not just dead weight. Like there's a massive snake in that bag. Oh my God. Roger, I would have. I, okay, I remember checking into a motel and there was a fuck there was a candy wrapper left on the uh, nightstand and I went down to to get another room. I'm certainly not going to stay in a room where there's a big fucking burlap sack thing. <laughs> just a mystery sack. <laughs> just like this mystery sack. Um and like and I do want to also acknowledge that like over the course of the scene unfolding, Evelyn kind of pops back up in her little like nook hole, like looking through the door of of like the of the bathroom floor, and she's just like fucking so she's pleased as fucking punch. The joy she takes out of this snake being in this room, it's palpable. She is chuckling and chortling, and I love her. I love Evelyn in these moments. She steals the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he, she throws it in the corner. They get on with their night. We do cut to Ev- Reverend and Crenshaw are together in the Reverend's room talking about basically him being a pastor and he just, you know, he likes to spread the word of God and Crenshaw starts to like chide him because he's drinking. He's like, does the word of God involve drinking? Yeah, but you get like this unusually kind of deep conversation and between like two grown men, 
um, just like kind of being buddies and like relaxing, chatting, and they start kind of getting kind of deep with the material, like talking about like the differences between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell. And it was just like an interesting choice. But again, like, especially this being early eighties, you've got this older white, obese white man, and you've got this older African-American gentleman. And they seem to be in these, like this really comfortable place where they could just sit there and talk about life. And I find it almost charming um, and really reflected nicely on that era for me. Seeing two characters like this just have like a very natural moment together. I don't know if that makes sense. Does that? Yeah. No, it does. I, I feel like their relationship and their dialogue is handled very well. I, I like the fact that neither one of them really are caricatures. I mean, they could be because you have, you know, the drunken pastor who could very much become a larger than life caricature. And then you have, you know, Crenshaw who could definitely become a character. This was early, early eighties. You weren't seeing a lot of African-Americans in, in slasher fl- films. Um, and if you did, they were comic relief or, or they're just to be killed off. This character, this Crenshaw character, actually, as we mentioned, is one of the more substantial, well-written characters of the film. This character was my takeaway from the film, the strongest element in the sense of just how he was written into the story. Like he's he's lower class. He's poor. He says he's gone through some hard times, but he's by far the most like intelligent and capable and as soon as shit hits the fan he's unfazed i think that's my favorite part about this character what's most real most realistic to me and i think you're absolutely right in saying that not that these characters at least specifically these characters are not caricatures is in like the face of like this pretty unhinged event that's going on around him this this character is like keep it fucking cool keep it cool Let's figure out what we're going to do. We're going to take care of it. And we're going to get the situation under control. Um, I think that he's just very likable. And we talk about characters who have things that kind of unjust things happen to them in, in, over the course of films. I would throw this character into the ring as well. Just because he is the reason that they make any progress whatsoever. Yeah, if he would have just stuck to his guns and not listened to outside people, he would have made it. And that's what kind of pisses me off. We do now get introduced to after their after this conversation between Crenshaw and and Reverend Bill, they call it a night. We do now get introduced to Al, Al, who is driving, and Al has a car phone, and this is 1983. Which hey, good for Al. His secretary calls him, and he asks her. To find him the closest motel because he doesn't think he can, he's not going to be able to drive all through the night to get to his destination because he's tired. So she pulls out a, she tells him, let me get the, let me get the, um, motel brochure or whatever thing. And she tells him, oh, well, it looks like there's a mountaintop motel 12 miles ahead. He's like, okay, great. In the meantime, we cut to Prissy and Tanya are now broken down on the side of the road. They were just singing in their Beetle a few minutes ago, but now it broke down and they're, they're, they're on the side of the road in the pouring rain. And who happens to come along? Al. Let me acknowledge that, the, and I think the most striking aspect of these characters, aside from their vocal prowess, and Troy, I'm sure you'll hear me on this, is that they chose to put both of these poor girls in matching white t-shirts. And like, of course... This fucking asshole is going to pull over when he sees these fucking girls' headlights just full nipples, like just p- 
piercing through these so sopping wet white t-shirts. And the thing so intriguing about these characters is they're so goddamn naive, especially the one that like they don't even they aren't even thinking about the fact that their boobies are showing through their shirts. They're just like, oh thank God, someone's picking us up. Like this mysterious man who does in fact prove to be a fucking liar and a manipulator. Picks a, pick, he sees these boobies poking through his window. He absolutely is going to pick them up. Yeah, but they're charming. They're they're charming. The characters are charming. I, like I said, this is one of the few. I don't want to say one of the few, but this is a slasher film where I feel like the characters are pretty likable. They're not annoying. Um, they they seem real. Uh, and it's little things like the naive, naivete of of Chrissy and or not Chrissy, Prissy and Tanya that kind of very much ring true. Like these would two, these would be two naive small town girls who think they're going to make it big are definitely overestimating their own talent because everyone in their family has probably told them how great of singers they are because there's, they come from a town that has 50 people in it, but, but, but they're not annoying. They, they, they seem real. And that's one of the things about this movie that I, I have to say is a highlight for me is the characters are pretty solid, well-written, realistic. Um, you sympathize with them. You, you, when, 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 when they get in the car with Al, you, as the viewer know right away, he is skeezy. Right. And and you don't want to see these two girls taken advantage of. So every time they buy his bullshit, at least me as a viewer is like, oh, come on, it's really be smart. You know, you just want to hop in the screen and be like, be, be smart. Because what ends up happening is they get in the car and right away, uh, Tanya sees his car phone and she's like, oh my God, you have a car phone. You must be rich. And he proceeds to tell them that he pretty much owns Columbia records. Oh, and they lose their fucking minds. <laughs> oh, they lose their fucking minds. He's on a talent search. He's driving from city to city. He just left little rock and he's on a talent search and they are just fucking uh, ecstatic. They're like, Oh my God, what are the odds? We sing too. And he's just like, of course you do. Like he's, this fucker is such a shitty human being. He's just sitting there with a shit-eating grin across his face. Oh, because he knows he knows the minute they got excited when he told them that they own he owned Clemmy Records that he was gonna get some pussy. Let's be honest. That's all this guy wanted. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say in regards to one of these girls, like at least one of them is kind of savvy. The other one, fucking Tanya, man. We're gonna get to her, but just Listeners, remember that name, Tanya. I got some issues with Tanya, and we're going to be voicing them up here very shortly. So stay tuned. Um, meanwhile, Vernon is now so horny he can't Ugh. stand it. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love. I have that written down. He is so horny he can hardly stand it. Wearing his saggy diaper-looking bike boxer. Uh, these are. <laughs> These are rural people. They've got mullets and they've got mustaches that match their facial skin color. Like, come on, Troy. Come on. But, uh, and I, I really, I can't imagine a more enticing and exciting buildup to a sexual experience than one vixen that is Mary, who is now donning a, a very negligent. Is this supposed to be like Mother Superior and Silent Night, Deadly Night? This is uh, the ugliest thing. It shows no skin. 
It's like a bed sheet. And she's wrapping a bed sheet. She's trying to be flirty. He's like, what's taking you so long? And she's like, I got to get ready. He's like, ooh, ready for what are you getting ready? He's like, I'm going to show you. You leave it to me. I'm like, Oh, and she's boy. like, hold. She's like, she says, hold your horses. He's like, it's not my horse that's bothering me. No, and as he says that, and what I will say is a pretty well executed sequence. He flips over onto his side and comes eye to eye with that goddamn mysterious snake that was slithering around in the background. It's now on the nightstand. Yeah, just there, and it fucking strikes him in the cheek. It, it hits. It bites him in the fucking cheek, and this snake is huge. Yeah, this fucking thing. It looks like a python. How did she not know it was a snake earlier in that goddamn bag? What else could it be? Okay, this fucking <laughs> snake is huge. How does he kill it with two hits of a shoe? I don't know. I mean, this poor guy. We don't even really get any closure with this kid. No, we do. We do. <laughs> never mind. Because he's just. Let, let's be clear, guys. Moving forward, this character is bedridden. <laughs> With his face getting saggier and saggier throughout the film. Oh my god! If you're gonna watch this movie for one reason, watch it for his ever evolving snake oh. bite on his face. It, throughout the whole course of the movie, it just keeps growing. I, I'm shocked it didn't consume his whole body. It's the <laughs> but it's the worst makeup effect I've ever seen in my life. It literally looks like they went to um, Party City, bought some scar uh, ointment or sh- whatever scar makeup, and just slapped it on his cheek. And then just kept adding more and more of it. So by the time it gets to the end of the movie, it's just like a big glob of makeup stuck to his cheek. Yeah, I feel like they just kept adding to it. Like every shot, they'd be like, add some more on. But I mean, again, here we go. This is just more proof that bad makeup can make or break a goddamn movie. Because I will say that the execution leading up to the snake bite was actually quite unsettling like you see the snake moving across the counter he doesn't see it at all the actual strike of the of the snake is pretty well cut well executed and then like after that it it looks like someone took a like a pencil and drew two circles on his cheek and put a little fake blood on it and i'm like are you fucking kidding me like if you would have given me a better effect i would have you would have had me you would have had me for this whole snake bite side story well yeah well, he gets bit, and she tries to call for help, and of course, the phone line is dead. So we cut to back to Al, Prissy, and Tanya, who are on their way now to stay at the Mountaintop Motel. And he basically tells them, because it's raining, he's like, you guys can stay with me. And they're all excited. Uh, at least Tanya is. Prissy's a little like, eh. They pull up to the motel. He goes in to get a room Evelyn is comes out and she doesn't say anything to him. She doesn't say a word to him. She doesn't even tell him how much the room is. She just like gives him a key. Uh, he's like trying to talk to her. And even as he's leaving, he's like, ma'am, you have a spider web in your hair and he tries to take it, get, get it out of her hair for it. She like backs away. I loved that little interaction right there with the whole spider web like he, like she bats it out. She bats his hand away from her, and he instantly is like, "All right, well, thank you." Like he completely is like, "I'm getting the fuck out of here." And um, Al's character, it's it's difficult because he's doing something really shitty to those girls. So I lean towards not wanting to like him, but a lot of his interactions and like his willingness also to um jump in later in the game and be part of the solution 
makes me want to like him. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he is he is doing something shitty. He, um, he, I mean, I think he sort of a little bit redeems himself later, and we'll get to it. But he still is kind of charming. You know, he he's he's skeezy, but he's not played that way. Does that make any sense at all? Like he's very. Oh no, absolutely. He's very charming. He's very likable. Like he, he's not like he's rubbing his fingers and being like, oh, I'm getting some pussy. No, he's he's being very charming and, and he it seems like he generally does sort of care about these girls and their well being, even though he is tr- sort of trying to take advantage or he is taking advantage of them or, or he's going that's his plan, right? Well, I think it's important that this character be played charming because that's part of the reason these naive girls fall for him so quickly. So I think that it really shows the actor also doing a good job with this performance because he's also able to charm us through this shitty kind of plot that he's been developing with the girls to, you know, to sleep with them. As soon as things get to be severe, he tosses that aside and he does step up to the plate. So yeah, I just think it really reflects on the actor doing a pretty good job of playing this kind of sleazy character that also kind of has a heart, you know? So on the way back to his car, he runs into Mary, who's frantic and tells him she needs help because her boyfriend was bit by a snake. And he says he will use his car phone to call for help. So she goes back into the room. He goes to their cabin and tells the girls to go on in and he's going to call for uh, help. And he does. He calls the uh, the police station. Someone answers. Uh, and they're trying to get through their sheriff. But the sheriff is at the bar, the local bar, leaving his fucking walkie-talkie out in his car. So he doesn't get the call. Yeah. Meanwhile, the girls are huddled around a fucking candle. <laughs> this was weird, though, because the, sh- the, girl, the sheriff is in that bar drinking. And he's like that the bartender that blonde dolly parton looking bartender she's like give me my cut back now i didn't understand what was he was he harassing her what was i honestly uh, have no fucking idea like they never revisit (laughs) and that's not even is it the same it's it's the is it a different is it the same sheriff as the one that becomes like the predominant character yeah it's the same sheriff. yeah yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so weird because it's so like removed from the rest of his storyline like throughout most of the film he's very invested in finding out what the mystery is going on behind the murder of that girl of of lori and then you cut to that bar moment and it seems just so detached from everything else his character kind of is about that it felt very um dislocated does that make sense i mean i think it was just their way of of putting him in a way where he could not answer the call yeah so they're yeah. like oh let's just throw him in a bar you know i don't know um but yeah it doesn't it, it doesn't mesh well with the rest of the film and with his storyline i don't think but yeah, the girls are in the motel room, huddle around a, a candle when Al comes back in and he says, I have some clothes for you. He gives them some clothes to change into. Of course, it's like a men's t-shirt. So like barely covering anything and her vagina is pretty much just revealed. <laughs> it's a men's t-shirt and then a button up, uh, a button up dress shirt that the other one has on. Again, doesn't cover anything. So everything's hanging out, but they're thankful. They're thankful. They're very um, polite young women. They are very polite young women. Like they're from they're small town Arkansas girls. They're they're polite. They were raised right, you know. The poor the poor reverend. He's just trying to sleep. 
And Evelyn now is up to her old shenanigans because she opens his trap door to let a bag. F- Where the fuck is she getting she, a bag full of rats into his room? And I'm not talking like one or two rats, Roger. This is like 20 rats because what they do is they, they climb up on his bed and they're, they're crawling all over him. They're crawling all over the bed stand. One thing I find very intriguing about this decision here is there's like this turn where Evelyn is, it doesn't seem like she's doing things to kill so much as just to like greatly inconvenience the people staying at the motel. Like, she unleashes these rats. These rats, it's not like she like put peanut butter on the reverend and they're going to eat through his skin or something. You know, they're just they're just loose. Big fat rats just waddling around. Of course the reverend wakes up and he flips his shit and then he's his solution is to drink more cuz that's well he bats a few, he bats a few of them off the bed with his bible. And he's like these fucking rats. Where on God's green earth did these rats come from? So it was just, it's weird because this starts a, a brief trend where she's really just doing things that are just annoying. It seems like she's a jokester at first. Like she's playing pranks and she's just getting a big old kick out of it. But then something does happen that, that kind of switches the switch. But yeah, it, it's, it's odd. It's odd that she starts with snakes, rats, roaches, and then progresses to uh, horrifically murdering. <laughs> it's quite the progression, right? Back in the room with Al, the girl, Al makes them a drink, um, some bourbon, right? And, or scotch, one of the two. This is when Chrissy does kind of express that she is a little bit skeptical because he's like, I can make you guys stars. Uh, And he just keeps going on and on about how he's worked with Barbara Mandrell and all all the famous Nashville, you know, singers. And he's recorded with them in the studios. And Chrissy is starting to get a little bit prissy, prissy, not Chrissy, prissy. It's starting to definitely not. It's definitely prissy. prissy. I know it's prissy. (laughs) Uh, She's getting a little skeptical. Evelyn goes back to her house and she is hearing Lori's voice again, saying mama, mama. And she goes to get a doll and like awkwardly carrying around this like hideous plastic doll. Well, I was gonna say, if you look at this doll, it's so strange because whoever whoever did the doll's makeup is clearly a drag queen. I mean, the eyebrows, the lips, but then like if you look, because she's like in, she's shadowed, but if she steps into the light, you realize that um that Evelyn's makeup is like really exaggerated and like matches the dolls. It's strange, like it doesn't. I don't even understand exactly like what it represents, but yeah, like her makeup is like really exaggerated with like big lips and all this eyeshadow. Yeah, I saw. I noticed that. I was wondering because it's only in this scene. Yeah, yeah. The rest of the film, it's gone. Like she's not wearing the makeup anymore. But it is this one scene with this drag queen eyeliner on and. Um, she gets some roaches out of an aquarium. So she has snakes in aquariums. She has roaches in aquariums. She has rats in aquariums, but she gets a bunch of roaches. And now with her drag queen eyeliner, she goes back down into her little tunnel system and goes up into Crenshaw's room. All throughout the course of this, I want to really quick announce or, um, acknowledge that the, the score here, Troy, and, and I'm sure you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, the score is just super, super reminiscent of that era in general. But they do these little mysterious chimes every time something is suspicious or building in intensity. 
um, you hear this like little like ding kind of chime musical cue. It just it it it's, it stands out to me as being one of those kind of key score flares that were was really prominent in the early to mid nineteen eighties films of this genre. Uh, I appreciate it. I'm saying it's a good thing. I just want to acknowledge that it feels so of that era. It does. It's very 80s. Very 80s. So she lets the uh, roaches loose in Crenshaw's room, and they immediately swarm all over him. Uh, This poor guy just trying to sleep, and he wakes up with covered in roaches. He wakes up. He's like, oh, my God, roaches. I'm getting the hell out of here. I love how calm he is, though. Like, I mean, if I woke up and there was that many roaches all over me, I would just, I'd leap from the bed screaming. He's just somewhat put off by it and starts talking about how he's going to, how they ought to call the place a roach motel. That's his little side comment. But overall, he's just like, oh, there's roaches all over me. And he's like batting them off and he eventually gets out of his bed. But he's like covered in roaches. I don't understand how he's so calm in this situation, but he proves to be calm in all situations. So it it ends up being a, just a trait of this character, you know? Oh, I'd get the hell out of there. Yeah. He, but he is, he's like, he's very calm crack, trying to crack little one liners. Yeah. His comment about, look, they should just call this the roach motel back in Al's room. The girls are now auditioning for him by singing a duet together. (sighs) All I could say is bless their hearts. They're trying. And he's, he's playing along pretty well. I mean, he tells them that when they're done that they are a little, they need a little polishing, but he can definitely see them recording an album in Nashville. The the whole time on his face, he, he looks so fucking like cocky and like sly. And he basically looks like in his eyes, you girls sure sound good, but you'll sound way better with your, with my dick in your mouths is what he, that's exactly how he looks. Like, once you're sucking my dick, this song is going to sound 10 times better. So yeah, you can totally read what this fucker is up to. Oh yeah, he is, he is, he's trying not to laugh, but yeah, he does have this cocky look on his face. This is when Evelyn, back in her house, she starts hearing Lori's voice. And it's taken a, it takes a very dark turn because now Lori's voice is telling her that she must kill all of the people at the hotel because they know she's crazy and they're going to send her back to the hospital. And this is what basically, I guess, sets her off on her murderous rampage is her daughter's voice speaking to her. If this is all they're really going to give me in the sense of like Evelyn's like deteriorating mental state. It is all they give us though. Yeah. And that's, I think I was trying to find more of an explanation because Again, as you said earlier, you've got some really well-written characters. Overall, like the progression of the storyline is interesting. It's very different from other films in the setup. You know, like there's a reason each one of these unique individual groups of people is in this motel, staying at this motel. They don't even know what's coming in any way. It's intriguing. I want to pay attention to this film. And I still, it keeps my attention all throughout. But for the explanation to merely be like, oh, Evelyn is crazy. And when she's crazy, she kills people. Like, I want it to be more. I want there to be some more meaning to it, something deeper. But I think you're probably right. 
I think it just goes back to Roger that that the villain in this film is the least developed character of them all. I said that at the beginning and it's just something I'm going to keep harping on or keep mentioning because it, it is a fact. It's a fact that this Evelyn who is supposed to be the villain, who is the villain, she's not supposed to, she's the villain. We really get nothing about her. I mean, her whole purpose in this film is to kill. You know, I think that's a detriment a little bit to the film. I would have liked to have had a little bit more personality from her, a little bit more in her of interacting with the guests at the motel to kind of get a better idea of her personality and what's like driving her. But we don't, we don't get anything. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because I don't think, I think the actress is fairly good in, in with, with what she's given to do, which isn't a lot. And I just would have liked to have seen more, you know, from her. We do get, a quick scene of the sheriff. He must have saw that he has a missed call because he calls back to the station and says, Hey, you know what? I got your message, but I couldn't get through to the motel. So I'm going to drive out there to check it out myself. So it kind of sets into motion a purpose for the sheriff arriving at the hotel. Now we do get back in Al's room. The girls are singing him another song. This is when he's like tight, um, telling them guys, you're going to have a hit album. And Tanya gets really excited and hops into bed with him. He's in his, basically, he's in his underwear. She hops into bed with him and he's like, hey, do you want this to be a solo? And to, to Chrissy, and she storms off into the bathroom immediately. And him and Tanya start making out. But she, Tanya gets kind of uh, upset and is like, you know what? I better go check on, on Chrissy. So she goes into the bathroom. And this is when Prissy's like, you know what? That Al's a phony and you're hopping into bed with this phony. And they kind of have this argument back and forth. And Tanya's like, I'm not missing this opportunity. What if he's not a phony? I'm like, oh, girl. Overall, this whole moment between these girls, they really kind of define, in my mind, the girl you want to root for and the girl that you're like, get the fuck out of here. You're a bitch. I know who I want to die after this point. And unfortunately, it chooses to give me the opposite of what I require from this film. So that's disappointing because Miss Prissy ain't taking no bullshit from this guy. Miss Prissy, finally, she locks herself in the bathroom. She's like, fuck it. I don't want to be, I don't want to be sleeping with anyone to get to the top. And that causes one Tanya to completely like toss Miss Prissy, her cousin, Miss Prissy. She tosses her aside and she's like, basically like, fuck you. I'll do anything for fame, even if it means leaving you behind in my dust. I'm going to get some dick, so have fun in the bathroom. And that's exactly what she does. She goes right back out in the bed to make out with Al. And in the bathroom, poor Prissy is, you know, fixing her hair. All of a sudden, we see Evelyn come up through the floor, kind of slowly looming over Prissy. And all of a sudden, Prissy kind of senses that somebody's behind her. She turns around and Evelyn hacks poor Prissy in the face with the sickle. Oh, the stab to Prissy's face is so awkward, Troy. It's awkward to say the least. I mean, the action, the cut, the physical actual cut on her face as well. But like also the cut swinging down on her. Um, it just, it just doesn't quite land. The only thing about this, this kill, this moment that kind of got me was after the fact, Evelyn like looks at the body and then she pokes her to make sure she's dead. And I like, I chuckled a bit, but like, again, if we're going to talk about bad makeup effects, this is not a good one. 
<laughs> this is not a good makeup effect. No, it's not. It's not. It's like it, it literally they just put some it's so lazy. It just looks like they took a, like I said, a glob of, of like makeup and just splashed it on her face with some blood on it. Well, and like they don't even blend the skin colors and that really shows up in the transfer that I watched. Like the differentiation in skin tone between the seam of the makeup, like it's very obvious and it really like just takes away from some of these fairly well executed moments. But yeah, so now Miss Prissy's dead. I'm fucking pissed because that means you know who is going to take the reins is like basically the female lead. Uh, goddamn Tanya, who is incompetent. Let's put that out there right now. As the movie goes on, the rest of this movie, if there's one goddamn weak link, it's fucking Tanya. She can't do shit. She's not capable of doing anything. She just sits there and she screams dramatically for the rest of the film. Yeah, she's worthless. But she does want to check on Prissy again. And Al's like, no, I'll do it. So he gets up and she's like, well, I'm coming with you. It's like, bitch, it's the door's right there. You don't need to get up to, out of bed. You can literally see... <laughs> So he goes and opens. This room is the size of a pillbox. <laughs> he, he opens the door and immediately they see the blood, but no Prissy. And of course, Tanya starts screaming. Yeah, that's blood. Yeah, <laughs> her southern draw is so so prominent with some of these lines. That's blood. <laughs> and Al's like, "I'm gonna go get help. You stay here." Despite Tanya being like, "Don't leave me! Don't leave me!" He's like, "Stay in here, bitch." Uh. <laughs> It's like somebody just disappeared from the room. Obviously, there's a way for someone to get in and out, and you're going to leave this poor girl who's obviously not not in the best mental state. You're just leaving her there. Okay, whatever. Well, and also, like, out of all the people to kind of, for me as the viewer at this point, with this whole situation that's transpiring, Al kind of, like, steps up to the plate and, like, takes charge a bit. Um, And, like, out of all the people that we've been introduced to thus far – we get porn stash Al as like the male lead, I guess. Uh, it's the man who moments ago like lied to these two innocent young women to coerce them to have sex. Now this is the moment where everything turns and he kind of takes the bull by the horns. And it is an awkward transition going from like kind of despising him to now having to be like, okay, this guy might get some shit done after all. But um, yeah, it just it's awkward. It's it was an awkward t- turn in events for me, you know. Yeah, outside Al runs into Crenshaw and he's like I'm going to go warn the newlyweds there's a girl missing. So you go they go into their room to the newly the newlywed Alan or Vernon and Mary's room to tell her that a girl's missing and they need to they need to be aware of their surroundings and the poor Vernon's still on the bed with his face slowly like melting off. That that snake bite is looking severe at this point. It is looking severe. Oh, it's got it's his his whole cheek now is just like this big glob of shit, and it's all miscolored, and he's just bedridden. Like he can't get up and do anything. He can't even talk. Like because because Al's like, "How are you doing?" And he's like, Ugh. "Like he's dying. <laughs> this man is dying." They go to they go next door to warn the Reverend now about the situation. And the Reverend's like, okay, I'll, I'll get, I'll get out there and, and help. And the minute they leave, literally, like the minute they leave, the Reverend turns around and Evelyn comes out of his bathroom, and he's like, Evelyn, Dungeon yeah, he's Dungeon. like, Evelyn, what are you doing here? <laughs> she comes up and hacks him in the chest with her sickle. And this is a awkward kill too, because the angle that you see her hit him in the chest with 
is not the angle that the sickle is sticking out of when he turns around. Oh, we yeah, uh, we definitely acknowledge that the first watch when we saw it, like we were like, oh, that was we- like awkwardly edited. And what makes it even worse is like she steps out of the shadows and she's like, away, Satan. Yeah, and, and, and it's like, this, there's like this double beat. It's not even like a beat. It's like an like elongated pause before she jabs the sickle into this, the, into his gut basically. And like, there is so much time for this man to respond or react or do something. And it's just like very awkwardly paced. Yeah, it's some of the editing in this film, particularly towards the end, is very messy, very sloppy. Yeah. And this is this is one this is one particular um, scene where I think the editing is definitely sloppy. It could have been tightened up quite a bit and it wouldn't have looked so awkward and ridiculous. So Al goes back to the hysterical Tanya, who's in the just the room on a, on the bed, just crying. She really becomes. You're right. She becomes worthless. However, I do have to give him some kudos because he does tell her he admits that he's not the record executive; that he's just an advertising agent. Yeah, I think they needed to do that. I think that was the right call to have him have some remorse for what he had done. Yes. Well, she freaks out and she's like, Prissy was right. You're just a fucking phony. And he calms her down. And Crenshaw, back in his room, I love this little man. He is over this shit. He is packing his shit up. He's like, I'll sleep in the truck if I have to. He's just like, I'm getting out of here. Crenshaw is sensible. He's a, he's sensible. He is Oh, he wants to get the fuck out of there. He's like, I'm over this. People have rats. They have snakes. I'm getting out of here. But he goes to use the bathroom first. And he's on, as he's on the toilet, he sees the trap door opening. Yeah, we see the whole process of him, like, sitting down on the pot. Like, I literally thought I was going to watch this old guy take a shit. I was getting ready for it. <laughs> like, it, sound effects and everything. But we don't get the sound effects, thank fucking God. No, we don't. He, he, but he does grab his toolbox and nail the, uh, the trap door shut as soon as he can. Oh my God. As soon as he did that, I was like, fuck yes. Like this guy is going to give me what I need from this character. Yeah. And so what he does is he basically goes to all the rooms to, to tell him, to tell them, Hey, we, I know how this guy's getting or how this person's getting in. So he goes into Al and Tanya's room and he, he nails their, their trap door shut. Crenshaw, like the moment shit hits the fan, he is so like, I said this earlier, but like cool under pressure, he immediately develops a plan. Like we've got to give this guy some credit right off the bat. He develops a correct suspicion of who the killer is. Cause Al says, who do you think is doing this? He says, I think it's the old woman. So he develops a, th- a theory of who the killer is. He calmly begins to nail all of the doors shut in these trap doors. So they can't get through. And he basically is like, let's formulate a plan. We got to get through and figure out what we're going to do next. Like, let's get the ball rolling because people are dying for a reason. Everything that's happening here is because of this one person. He's the one that really honestly gets the ball rolling with them formulating a plan. Yes. And he gets it into motion. They actually, he, him and Al actually go to Evelyn's house and start to search it. And they find all the weird dolls and shit. Uh, in, in Lori's room, they're exploring and, and it's very obvious that something is not right with Evelyn now that they're finding all this shit. And they, th- he does find her trap door that leads to the tunnel and in a very smart 
manner, he nails that shot too. Yeah, he's like, she can't. We can't let her get back in here. So yeah, and yeah, fuck yeah. Al's like, Al's like, we have to go after her. Ugh. And Crenshaw's like, no, we don't. Why do we have to go? He's like, just let the law deal with that. I'm not going to be killed by some crazy white woman. And Al's like, we have to get her before she gets us. I'm like, I'm like, what the fuck? You just locked her in. You just hit, nailed her in. The she's not coming after you. And second of all, this is a elderly woman. Old. I mean, this woman is old. If I were these fuckers, I would have taken a Molotov cocktail, thrown it in there, nailed it shut, and just let her fucking cooked. Like, don't get your hands dirty with this broad. Don't go in after her. But why is Al so afraid of her coming after them? You could, hey, you know what? Get in one of the room. There's how many of you? There's there's uh, five of you left. You know, all you have to do is get in one room, and when the old bitch comes up through the floor, bash her in the head. Like, this is not a super villain. This isn't. Somebody, it's an elderly woman, and Al is acting like we have to go after her. We have to get her before she gets us. Yeah, it definitely is an underdeveloped, underdeveloped reasoning for why they eventually decide to go in. All they had to have done is, like I said, go into all get into one room and wait for her old bitch to come up the or, or nail her in. She's not getting out. Wait for the police to show. But Al insists, and Crenshaw does protest. Like again, I want to acknowledge you said this, but like. If they would have listened to him, that's exactly what would have happened. He should have just listened because he, what ends up happening is they go to the newlywed room. They show uh, Mary the hidden door in the bathroom. They put something over it so that it can't be opened. And they leave to tell her, please lock the door behind you. And as they leave, fucking Evelyn has already come up through the floorboards and was hiding in the bathroom because she comes up behind Mary and as Mary turns around, she Evelyn hacks her in the sickle, hacks her with the sickle. Ugh. And then there is a scene where she hacks her again, and the sickle supposedly goes through her cheeks and comes out. Oh, my God. It looks so bad. It is the worst <laughs> effect I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's, it's bad. It's bad. And again, this is a sequence that up until the actual visual of the gore... The pacing is actually well played. She emerges from the shadows with that fucking like glazed over look on her face. And Mary turns around just as the fucking sickle comes down. He wakes up seeing it happen, but he's so sick he can't do anything. So she ends up slicing his throat. Um, The whole scene as a scene is actually quite effective. The gore is so bad that it drops like five notches just because it looks so fucking cheesy and shitty. If they would have had a good makeup artist, this would be a very effective sequence. Of course she's already in the room. Like, I can't think of anything scarier, you know? Yeah, she's in the room. She kills Mary. She kills Vernon. Not before telling him, well, don't you look lovely. Cuts his throat. Again, awkward. It's an awkward kill. Crenshaw and Al hear the screams and break back into the room and see the dead body. And this is when they like decide to go down after her. And the plan is Crenshaw's going to go down through the newlywed room. Al's going to go down through another room and they're going to meet in the middle because they, they, they feel like Al feels like they'll run into her. If one's at one end, one's the other end and they're coming to meet, they're going to run into her. And poor Crenshaw agrees to do this. God damn it. God damn it. Crenshaw. You've been so fucking sensible. Uh, uh, Troy, one thing I do want to acknowledge that we, we, it's so brief overall but we we did miss that this is a key event that happened um as all of this has been transpiring 
the sheriff did arrive, but found out that the path is now blocked by a fallen tree. Because earlier in the film, as Al was arriving with the girls, we saw this rather elaborate lightning bolt strike that looks too big budget to have been pulled off in this film, but somehow they did it, Um, where one of the tree branches falls over the road behind them. Um, And so now when the sheriff has arrived, the road is completely blocked off, so he has to walk the rest of the way up to the motel. Yeah. Yeah. So he's on his way. Uh, Al goes in, back into their room and he tells Tanya to get the hell out. Go get, take his keys. If he's not back in five minutes, she's to take off, drive away from there. So she takes his keys and she goes out to the car, runs and locks herself in the car. We cut to Crenshaw is down in the tunnels with his, he has a, um, he's carrying a, a hammer for protection and he's just walking through the tunnels exploring and he's finally gets to the point where he's like al al you should be here by now and he drops his hammer and as he reaches down to pick the hammer up fucking evelyn comes out of nowhere and cuts his hand off <laughs> with the sickle and then cuts him in the throat with it. oh my god i was so fucking ma- mad at this like losing crenshaw was a blow <laughs> for me well, plus the fact that it happened so quickly to yeah. him. Like we, there was no like buildup. It just r- r- out of nowhere, he's killed. Yeah, it's like it's more meant to be a shock, I think. But it does feel like for that character, it feels like he deserved more. Because um, he was so pivotal in basically them getting a grasp on the situation, you know? Yeah, but he was so sensible. Like he, he was about ready to go. Like just he should have just left. Yeah, I want to acknowledge very quickly that before Al left Tanya behind, he did make the bold decision to kiss her on the lips. To me, I I am now confused. Like, are they like lovers now? Like after he after he tried to like, you know, fuck her over to fuck her. Are they now like romantically entangled? I'm very confused by that decision. That seems like that's poorly thought out on Tanya's part. It seems for sure. No, it seems. Yeah, that's no. I, I feel like they're in, they're going to end up together. Uh, she's forgiven him. And- but I do want to acknowledge that the way this whole thing builds up, man. And you mentioned this earlier, in the sense of like once you get down into the cellar, or not the cellar, but the maze, you know, that leads down from all of these rooms. Unusually suspenseful, all things considered. When you think of what the story is, it's about a petite elderly woman who is going around creep, uh, creepily killing people and playing pranks on them. Uh, when you watch this unfolding and you think about what the storyline is and the fact that it's still able to feel suspenseful, it's still able to feel tense, this, you know, this basement cellar layer, it's all shadows and darkness. And uh, between that and cutting between that and the uh, Tanya in the car, like screaming for Al as the rain is beating down, it actually manages to swell and build and what is, I think, a rather intense finale, all things considered. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. It goes by pretty quickly. It happens all pretty quickly. And like the editing in a certain scene is very sloppy. It is. Yeah. So the sheriff shows up and he sees Tanya in the car and tells her to open the door. She comes out and freaks out and she takes him in the room and shows him the trap door. And it's like, everyone's dead. She's killed everybody. So he, the sheriff goes down into the tunnels himself to look for Evelyn. 
Uh, and it is kind of a, I don't want to say it's drawn out. It happens pretty quickly, but there is, you know, a, a, a pretty lengthy scene of him just walking through this tunnel, like taking everything in. And we do see how like elaborate this thing is and how it has all these different corridors that lead up to the different cabins and stuff. And as he turns one of the corners, he does find the dead bodies of Prissy and the Reverend. Again, the makeup is really not doing any favors, especially the dead face makeup. It's so like cartoony. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's just the white makeup with some green tint to it. Yeah, yeah. I'm very confused as to why they opted to give Tanya so many big moments because she has them with Al, and now with the sheriff, she's got this big dramatic breakdown moment. Like the girl, like she's not awful, but she can't totally carry it. Uh, it, it's just so emotional. Her reactions are always very huge. Like to she everything. doesn't, but she doesn't really do anything. No, she adds nothing to the greater good of the movie. She's a very weak yeah, female. She, she doesn't have a she doesn't have a moment where she's fighting back or doing anything. It's just her. She's she's playing the hysterical girl throughout the whole film. But I do want to say, Troy, that like once the sheriff arrives, and this is one thing about the ending, I want to appreciate. You're right. Not a lot happens. And I think they knew that. So they really need to needed to kind of drag this whole bit out of the sheriff's first time exploring this maze. Um, and like for being so absurd, because this movie's fucking absurd. There are a few moments throughout the course of the film that where it operates with an element of like well-timed realism that genuinely kind of adds to the experience, at least for me. Like so the she the scene where the sheriff finds Tanya, he goes through the house. He explores, he finds the blood in the bathroom, then he discovers the maze, and it feels like strangely authentic and real, and and like I said, suspenseful. There's this strange, unusual storyline that we're working off of, uh, but oftentimes, with the, even with the, the makeup, this awful makeup playing against it, the, the fact is, like, some of these scenes do manage to gel and land and succeed in ways I did not expect them to. And I did find this whole suspenseful creeping moment as the sheriff was kind of just discovering how massive this is to be a rather well paced out cinematic moment. What it leads to is pretty lackluster, but this sequence as a whole, I found pretty damn enjoyable. Well, it does. It it does build some suspense because we know that Evelyn's down there, right? And she knows the, she knows this maze better than anybody. So at any moment, she could pop out and, and, and sickle the sheriff. And I think that was, it was a very smart move for them to make his journey through this maze, very slow and deliberate because we are expecting as the audience her to come out at any minute. So it does give us kind of an edge of the seat few minutes while he's doing this. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen because what ends up happening is he goes into the room that we saw at the beginning with Lori where she was doing her seance and Evelyn is there and she turns around and just attacks him with the sickle. And as she swings the sickle at him, she misses and it gets stuck in one of the wood beams. And then, then there is this very awkward struggle between the two of them. Oh, it's so awkward where she, he's, she, he, I'm thinking the whole time. Okay. And I don't know if you caught this. He barely tries to fight back. Like he, he lets her, punch him. He lets her choke him and he's doing nothing. And I'm like, dude, you're the fucking sheriff. You know, this broad just killed a bunch of people. You found their bodies, hit her, do something. And I don't know if it's because 
they were trying to make it so that, oh, it's the sheriff. He's hesitant to hit an old woman. Or if it was the fact that they didn't really want to work on blocking out the stunt. You know what I mean? So what ends up happening is very awkward. She like chokes him. I have to give it to her. This little broad is going full force. She's not backing down. She jumps up on it, choking him. And he does finally lightly punch her. And she falls back against the beam against the wall and smacks her head. And as she's like coming to the beam falls from the ceiling that has the sickle in it and it cuts her in the neck. It's very awkward. Very awkward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, there's one moment leading up to this where like, and I'm happy they had this. They had one more scene of Evelyn having one of her weird little breakdowns in the maze where she's hearing the voices and everything. And I think that like, even if it's not something supernatural, even if it's just what's going on in her head, you needed that kind of reminder that there is something more to the situation that she's unhinged and that she's unstable because going into this big final moment, she, when you look at this on paper, this woman is not threatening, but she is someone who has unnatural murderous tendencies for whatever that may be. And that's kind of the thought that you need to carry this through to make it at all impactful. And you're right. Like she does give it her all. And I think his reason for not fighting back is he he's known her like he knows her by name. I think he's hesitant at first to hit this woman until he realizes, holy fuck, this broad is completely deranged. Um, what did bum me out was the fact that the way the, the engineering of her death, what well, was kind of impressive, the way it all played out, the execution was so kind of like clunky and she literally dies just by chance like it's not really at his hands it's nothing anyone does this you know uh, the, the maze starts to collapse the beam comes down and it, it chops through her neck like an axe and it's interesting it's it's the execution is unique but i think that it just kind of showed some of the overall amateur elements within the film uh which is a shame because it, if this would have been just a slightly tighter ending I think it would have made for a way more impactful finale, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's very awkward. That's all I can say. And he, he bends down in front of her, uh, to check, you know, if she's alive and we do get one jump scare where she comes, comes alive and kind of like reaches out towards him and grabs his neck, grabs his throat. And, but then she dies. So nothing really comes of it. Another bad makeup effect too. Uh, no, oh, it's horrible. Oh my like God. Her, yeah. Her face is all contorted and, but it's, you can just tell it's just like bad purple makeup. Um, and you really don't even see like the impaled part of the, the sickle at all. Like they, they do, they, they do not show that probably because they knew it would look like shit. So you really don't even see the sickle inside of her throat or it, it's, it's just very awkward, very awkward. And I love that. Like, I love that she has instant, like, extreme dead face makeup seconds after, like, this injury. Like, she's got, like, purple pits under her eyes oh, yeah. and everything. She, it looks like she's been dead for, like, 24 hours. And it literally just happened to her. But she dies. Yeah, like you said, it's nothing anybody does. It's all by chance that she dies. Mainly her own fault. But she's dead. The sheriff goes back up, tells Tanya everyone's dead. They get in his car. 
No, 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 no. He goes up, he tells her everyone's dead, and she immediately starts weeping. And then that door opens, and lo well, and behold. No, I was going to say, that they run into <laughs> Al. Al comes in. As they leave, Al comes back in. And she's like, oh, Al. But this is a big thing that you and I need to discuss, because I have a lot of thoughts and opinions on this. Al, who for the like a large chunk of the finale was stepping up to the plate as be like the kind of like hero apparently like hit his head when everything collapsed and just disappears disappeared for like 10 minutes i thought that too and it's it's my note i do have a note that says where was al this whole time uh, fuck if i know yeah it's such an odd this film makes some odd choices with its characters and that is one of them because like you said al was being set up to be like the hero of the film right it almost made more sense for that to actually happen. Like I would have, I feel like it almost be a more satisfying ending if the sheriff would have been killed and Al would have been the one that had that final struggle with Evelyn before she got killed. But it just doesn't pan out that way. He disappears and just happens to waltz back into the motel room right as they're leaving. Yeah. I, I don't know, Roger. I don't know what, why that decision was made. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, it's like the film realized they had, I, I think the film realized it had one too many characters maybe at the end and they kind of didn't know what to do with having that many survivors. It almost feels like they like had the actor who played Al for one less day than they anticipated and had to do like a quick, a quick rewrite or something like that's honestly how it feels because like, yeah, Al just, you just feel like Al would naturally have been more present for these final moments. And like I said at the beginning of the review, the sheriff, you you know, at the beginning of the movie, you think he's going to be very present. And then he kind of just is pulled back. Like they don't flesh him out. They don't develop him. Instead, they spend all this time developing the characters in the motel. So to suddenly thrust the sheriff back into the focal figure for the last like less than 10 minutes of the movie was a really awkward choice. It was not... Um, I don't think it was flattering to the satisfaction level for the finale. Like I would feel way more satisfied seeing Al get the best of her and like avenging like his fallen com- comrades who recently just died by losing their hands. Like, you know, I would have felt more satisfied if that was the ending versus the sheriff just waltzing back in, coming downstairs, finding this old woman and accidentally killing her. It's really like not a satisfying payoff at all. Yeah, the ending. Yeah, the ending leaves a lot to be desired. To be honest with you, just how it all plays out. But what ends up happening is they all go back to the to the car. They drive Al's car to the fallen tree. They all cross over the tree to get into the sheriff's car, and drive away. And I gotta say, as they drive away, we do get a brief glimpse of ghostly Lori. Evelyn's daughter watching them as they drive away. And I don't know where that came from, but yeah, man, that again, like, well, here I have a theory on that as well. One thing I did like is as they're leaving, I like that they showed just how fucking difficult it was to get out of that goddamn mountaintop motel. Because like, first of all, they, they have to take one car down and that car becomes like stuck in the mud because it's so fucking muddy. And then because of the fallen tree, they'll have to get out of that car and get in the cop's car. And then they drive away. Like it's an effort. So I get like why they were trapped at the motel. Uh, it makes it seem easily justified why they were not able to leave. Um, but the introduction of the specter or this like zombie version of Lori at the very end, A, 
very much is one of the reasons I was like, this has to have a supernatural ent- like element to it. Like there, she had to have something to do with this because if you're going to start the movie off with a goddamn seance, and you're going to end it with this mysterious ghostly vision of this character. Like, don't tell me there's not something somewhat supernatural going on over the course of this movie or don't fucking have it. Why would you introduce it with a seance, end it on a ghost zombie and not have it mean anything to this actual character villainess that is, Evelyn, that had to have had some sort of an impact, at least in my mind. I just think they poorly executed it. Or they simply thought that, oh, maybe we could help, like, beef up this ending a little bit by giving, like, a what if. What if there was, like, a ghost at play? Like, I wonder if they filmed that afterwards, because those shots do not intercut whatsoever. Like, it's completely separate. The ghost was filmed on a separate day. I bet you anything. Because she's just standing there watching in her own shots, and then you just see the car driving away awkwardly. Um, I, I wonder if they went back and, like, added that in to kind of add a more of a mysterious element to, to the final revelation, you know? My takeaway in, in it of it is that it's was just kind of thrown in there. I don't think, honestly, that the, the script really was meant to include any supernatural elements. Uh, it seems to me like it was pretty straightforward as a slasher flick. I mean, I know you mentioned your little, the, the little clues that, that tuned in that there might be like a supernatural element at play. And I could totally understand that. I've never gotten that impression. I, 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 I that could be, I don't know. I, to me, it just seems like something that was added in at the end, you know, to try to be like, Ooh, let's give them a kind of a shock ending. Let's yeah, leave them with something to sense. think about. Yeah. But the script in, in the, in the, in the, in regards of like the horror element, the script doesn't seem that uh, thought out. Um, the horror elements of this film are pretty, I don't know, uh, with the exception of a couple of them are pretty just like meh. Uh, I think what makes the film stand out a little bit is the location. I mean, you could not have found a better location to film this film at. Uh, the, the, the whole tunnel thing is very atmospheric. There is just this tense atmosphere that permeates throughout the entire film just because of like the dirtiness and the sleaziness of this place. It just leaves you very uncomfortable as you're watching. But uh, to me, it was just, uh, I hate to say this because I, I, I think the film does a lot of things right. But to me, this film comes off as being a cash grab. Uh, to make some money off the popularity of the slasher genre at the time. I don't see it as being anything more than that, but I think with that said, it does it a lot better than some of the other shit we've watched. Yeah, man. You know, I will say like overall, there are plenty of issues with this movie. The villainous being one of them when she's at her worst. However, even Within that character and what she is and how she operates, they still managed to have several moments with her that I enjoyed or I did find effective. Like, I want to go back and acknowledge a few of the things I thought were positive. Um, There were a few moments of her emerging from the shadows that I thought she was genuinely, like, creepy as fuck. Like, when she's in her kind of glazed over, I'm going to say possessed, meaning it's that's how she reads, transfixed kind of mentality, um, she is ominous and creepy and unsettling and i think she works overall as a as a, as a fully fleshed out character does she work no but she has moments that she is effective also i like the moments when she like 
you know, like when she planted the snake and she was like giggling and all, all into it. Like, I love the joy that she takes from this kind of mischief she's causing. I don't, I just don't know like where it's coming from. You know, I don't know what it's stemming from. I don't know what kind of mental issue she has. I don't know what the main problem was that affected her to go into the hospital to begin with. All they give us is that she was in a mental institution. That's it. If they would have thought that out more and set it up more, like this is a movie, I'll say this true. If this movie got a remake and they did fucking follow through with that that concept I have that this is somehow tied in to the daughter taking advantage of her like mental weakness, like a Deborah Logan kind of approach almost. Uh, the haunting of De- uh, Deborah Logan kind of uh, approach to this, or yeah, the take you Deborah Logan. Um, if they would kind of give it that kind of vibe and treat it like a "what exactly is wrong with her" kind of approach, this could be a terrifying movie. Unfortunately, in its first attempt at this story, it, it's not terrifying. It's just at times effective. Yeah, I would say that's that's. I think that's a perfect summary. My big issue with the film is the villain. I've met, I said it underdeveloped. You, she's not intimidating. She's not scary. Like it's an old elderly woman. I would have liked to have seen more interaction with her and the guests instead of her just being like this sort of background figure that's just there to, to, to cause mischief and, and ultimately kill. Um, we don't know anything about her, but like I said, the, the positives of the film, I think the characters are pretty interesting and the atmosphere is, is pretty great. And the tension at times is, is, well done. It's not the worst film we've watched. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. It's it's one that I could see myself throwing on again and watching. It's you know, it's there's there's some pluses for it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I would watch this again. I would sit back and watch this a couple times because honestly, I for everything that annoys me about it, there's something else that I found enjoyable or impressive or intriguing or interesting. I want to rewatch it just to simply try to figure out if there's anything more to the story that I did miss. Uh, it's just not necessarily easily. It's not easily. It doesn't come easily to the viewer. I'll say that, you know, like you got to figure shit out for yourself sometimes. Yeah. There's a lot of questions. And I think, you know, I'll just leave it at saying I would, it would be interesting for me to watch this film again with the perspective that you have, that maybe it is supernatural and see if I can pick up on anything. Um, and, and I'll definitely have to get back to you on that. But yeah, folks, that was, Mountaintop Motel Massacre, nineteen eighty-three, right at yes. the be- right at the peak of the the slasher craze, and you can, like I said, you can definitely tell that this was trying to cash in on a lot of the the classic slasher films. But again, definitely not the worst one out there, Roger. So, yeah, that's another episode. I don't think we really need to reveal, or I guess we you need to remind the the viewers what our next review is going to be. We actually, you, you told them at the end of last episode, but we had a little schedule change. So next week we will be doing what again? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's the new year. People got things to do. I'm one of them. Scheduling is difficult. So I, uh, for the greater good, I moved things around. And now next week we're going to be covering the ritual with the extremely talented Chris Wolf, who has just more movies coming up that have not even been released yet that we'll get to talk about as well because his career is just blooming and blossoming. So I love him. I think he's phenomenal. And uh, we're going to talk about The Ritual, which uh, I am still excited to fucking get into. But this was, you know, The Ritual is something very dry and dramatic. And this is anything but. So this was a delightful, like, comedic hors d'oeuvre to what will be, I think, a very deep and thoughtful uh, review with The Ritual. For oh, yeah. Episode. The Ritual, guys, Netflix, The Ritual, it's on Netflix. 
Yeah, so I'll have to start my ritual viewing soon because I'll have to watch it a couple times, I'm sure. So uh, to get proper notes, because yeah, that's one that you have to pay attention to, that ending. Um, But yeah, folks, so yeah, the ritual, we want to remind you guys, please, 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 if you don't want to become patrons and get access to all of our awesome bonus episodes, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. If you don't want to do that, please rate us five stars on Apple podcasts or Spotify. Spotify now added that you can rate podcasts. That's brand new. You never used to be able to. So give us five stars on either Apple podcasts or Spotify. Leave us a nice review and just share, share what we're doing. If you, if you enjoy it, just let's get the word out there for 2022. We got big things planned. So yeah, I guess that's all my little spiel for the week, Roger. Yeah. I mean, this is just the beginning for this. Is, is this our first? No, this is our second. Wait, is this technically our first? It's our technically our first Because when it dropped, did, yeah. We did so not acknowledge that. This is our first episode of 2022 and it's episode 52. Big, Yeah. The number two is very pivotal right now for us. We got 2022 episode number 52 and on our Patreon, lest we forget, the best second entries into a, a horror film the, series. The best part twos, yes. Best part two. So, I mean, it's two is the number of the month. Let's just acknowledge it. Absolutely, folks. So, yeah. Until next week when we do The Ritual with the special guest, Chris Wolf, we will uh, bid you adieu. Adieu. Keep your critters out of the garden. <laughs> Those guinea pigs, for the love of God. Keep them out. <laughs> All right, folks. Good night. Good night.